All right, so we are moving. We moved to this class because there's a little more room here. So um, thank you for coming today. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hi. And uh, there's also a whiteboard, which is fun for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it makes me happy. You almost died. I can barely handle it. I can see it there. Just a seductress, that whiteboard over there. So let me begin with prayer, and then we can jump into our, our content today. There are notes here. Uh, let me just, Rick, will you take that and just pass it around to make sure if you would like a copy, that's, that they're available for you there. So let's pray together. Today, Father, thank you for um, another day of your mercy and your love. Thank you for another Sunday where we're able to gather together as your people and worship. And thank you for your many blessings and for the great gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the church. Thank you, Jesus, that as the head of the church, you are um, breaking down walls of division and hostility that formerly existed among us and between us, and you are making one new people, and that we represent that and are a part of that. And we pray for our time together this morning in Christian education. We pray for our, our students and our, our little kids and ask for your blessing, that you would open up their hearts to know and love Jesus as they are taught your word. We pray for our time together that you would help us as we continue to think about um, cultural engagement and various views that Christians have taken. And as we seek to separate the wheat from the chaff in some of these views, give us understanding and insight. Help us to uh, take this material so that we could love you well and love our neighbors well. And we pray in the name of Jesus, all these things. Amen. Amen. All right, come on in. So you're going to need to remove... Change shirts coming in here with that on, Kelly. Texas Tech. <laughs> kidding me. So um, this is week three of a four-week class, and uh, we're looking at this week the second of three models for Christian cultural engagement. Um, and just a reminder, I know a lot, I'm giving you a lot of content, and some of it can be pretty heady. And I'm doing that intentionally because I want you to get this information and learn. And... Um, but I want to also have the big picture in mind before us. My goal here, again, is to just present different options for how Christians, thoughtful Christians in the recent past have thought about being salt and being light in the world, have thought about what the church, how the church should engage the culture. And so as you think about this material, if you do think about it, which I would encourage you to do, and maybe if you read some of the material I'm presenting book-wise, um, I'd like for you to just consider where you might land and that's part of what I want you to do is think, okay, this is something that I think reflects what the scriptures teach, this view, and I see myself there. And what I'm trying to do is take the positives and then some weaknesses from each of these views because I think each view has them. I think each view is picking up a particular thread of the teaching of the scripture and, uh, and emphasizing that thread. And I also think each view has weaknesses. So uh, that's just, again, the big picture. So at the risk of getting lost in the weeds here, I want to try to remind us of that each week. So last week, we looked at the first view. Anybody remember what the first view is, the first model? Stephanie? Transformationists, the transformational model. And transformationalists, anybody, what, what do we remember? What do transformationists say about how Christians should engage in culture? Yeah, so they are positive about Christian culture engagement and historically and even today there's a lot of political engagement especially in the the religious right you know sort of manifestation of transformationalism and then a lot of engagement in education for sure what other things do you guys remember there were two different camps there's kind of the religious right and then the 
the Neo-Calvinists. Yeah, the Dutch. <laughs> Better, the Dutch. People in Michigan, the Dutch, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, there's two different camps, and they take their view of politics is very different, but their agreement is on the premise that Christians should be engaged in the culture. And the uh, one really important thing we talked about was that Christians in whatever sphere of vocation God calls you should try to do as, should be as excellent as you can possibly be in that sphere. And that you are actually acting as a kingdom agent in your normal work. So you're not just a kingdom agent when you go be a foreign missionary. You're a kingdom agent as an engineer or as a plumber or as a teacher or as a housewife or as a mom or as a dad. And so that's a really significant part of the transformationist view. Any other comments or questions or reminders from last week's material? Okay. I've been asked to put, this is being recorded, last week's lecture is online, and it's in the newsletter, and all the notes are in the newsletter too. So if you, I'm sure all of you are going to listen to this repeatedly, every, every day for a couple weeks. And, and you can do that, because it's recorded for you. So today we're going to look at another model. This is the counterculture, the countercultural model. And um, what I want to do is kind of like what we did last week. I want to define what the model is, what they say, what they teach regarding how Christians should be engaged in culture. And then I want to give some emphases of the model slash strengths and then some weaknesses. And then we're going to answer the two big questions. First, should we be optimistic or pessimistic if we fall into this camp about the possibility for cultural change? And then is the current culture redeemable and good or fundamentally fallen? So countercultural, the name gives some of it away. The counterculturalists emphasize above all else that the church should be a counter culture, a contrast society to the world. This might be a little bit more of a foreign model to a lot of us based on our own kind of background. So the counterculturists say that cultural engagement is not something that the church should be concerned about at all. Um, um, it's not something that Christians should be concerned about at all either other than to witness to the kingdom of God by the church being the church. Look at the quote at the very top from Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian philosopher at Duke Divinity School. He's one of the leading counterculturalists. Here's what he says. The first task of the church is to be the church. Efficacy, influence, and change are never the ends that define its engagement with the world. So counterculturalists argue that the only aspect of engagement that Christians in the church should have with culture is simply by being a really strong church and really strong Christians in community with one another. And that that work itself acts as a kingdom witness to the world. Okay? That's the main idea. This model, the counterculturalists, are indebted, just a real brief oh, historical note here, to a group called the Anabaptists. Anybody familiar with this group? Heard of this group? It's a Reformation group. So there's kind of the main people in the Reformation. There's the Lutherans. There's the Reformed group led by Calvin. And then there's another group, Zwingli, right, was a name. Ulrich Zwingli, fun name, who uh, was a part of the Anabaptist group. And Anabaptists thought, you know, the mainstream reformers didn't go far enough in their reforms against the abuses of Rome. And so they have always had a goal for the church to kind of, the language they use is to return to the church of the New Testament, to return to the church of Acts 2, to be a primitive church. And um, so they, they were a part of the Reformation, 
but they wanted to go further in their break with Rome. One way they went further is their view of the sacraments. They rejected uh, the historic practice of infant baptism, which is why they're called Anna, which is again, again Baptists. So these are the historical heirs of our Baptists, some of you Baptists, brothers and sisters. So the extreme examples, someone help me with this. What are some, some examples that you think of? Let's think about like denominationally or just different sects, S-E-C-T-S, <laughs> or groups of people in our society today that you might think are examples of the countercultural model. Does anything come into your mind? Mennonites, absolutely. The Amish. The Amish are like the classic extremist example, right? So when Marianne and I and the kids go to Colorado every summer, the place where we stay, there's an Amish community there. And so there's horses and buggies going up and down the highway. and Oh, so good. Their food is so good. A lot of woodworking. Their woodworking is great too. So yeah, that's a great, the Amish are kind of the extreme polar example. Mennonites are an example, kind of a less radical version of the Amish. The Plymouth Brethren, if you've heard of this denomination, uh, Moravian churches, all these examples, all these are kind of denominational examples. Uh, but there's a lot more counterculturists than just people that grow up in those church traditions. Um, a lot of thinkers and Christians and theologians have drawn from these traditions a model for genuine Christian witness. I'll give you a couple names. These might not be familiar with you, but the main name is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, and he's old now. You probably never heard of him, but he's a very influential theologian and thinker. He's based at Duke, Duke University Divinity School. There's a couple other guys at Duke, Richard Hayes, Will Williman. Those guys are all Anabaptists or, or counterculturalists. Um, more popularly, um, Shane Claiborne, if you know that name, the New Monastics, he's a counterculturalist. John, John Mark Comer. Anybody know John Mark Comer? Amanda, I know you know John Mark Comer. He started writing books recently. He's a young guy, pastor in Portland. He is a counterculturalist. So he's a very, I'd encourage you to read Comer, by the way. I think his stuff's great. But he um, certainly falls into the Anabaptist countercultural model. And so, again, the counterculturalists are the opposite of the transformationists in a lot of ways. Transformationists say, go engage in every sphere in which the Lord has called you. I mean, uh, counterculturalists say, no, don't engage. In fact, in your engaging, you're actually corroding the church's health. We'll get more into that in just a second. Um, So the driving concern, I mentioned this briefly last week, another big word. The driving concern behind the counterculturalist view of cultural engagement is, is that right? Yes. Is a a word called Constantinianism. Constantin. Okay, you get it. (laughs) Constantinianism, which is a word that comes from the emperor Constantine, who was a 4th, 5th century Roman emperor. Anybody know what Constantine is most well known for historically? That's right. He is the emperor that made Christianity not just legal, but the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And so he wedded together church and state, right? In a way that church and state had never to that point been wedded. In fact, the church and state had been antithetical to one another throughout most of early Christianity. So the counterculturalists view that as sort of the original sin and would say that Constantinianism in all of its forms is an error. 
And the Constantinian error is basically this. When the church attempts to make the world more like the church, when the church attempts to transform or engage culture, the only thing that results is the church becoming more like the world. Okay? When the the church attempts to make the world more like the church, they succeed only in making the church more like the world which is what they would say happened with Constantine. When the Christian religion became the state religion, it it became less pure, it became less vital, it became less faithful when it acquired political capital and power. Does that make sense? And uh, I think there's actually a lot of truth behind that historically. You know, fast forward a thousand years, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church that spawned the Reformation largely were seeded in when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. That's a different story for a different day. So the Constantinian, Constantinian error is a big, big deal for counterculturalists. They are fearful of Christian cultural engagement because they believe any engagement, the church is going to be more affected by the world than the world is going to be affected by the church. Okay? Questions or comments thus far, just on the, the defining the idea, the main idea behind the model. Clear as mud. Okay, good. So let's do this. We'll get there just in just a second. Just a second. Um, let me let me talk about a few of the emphases, and I would also say slash strengths. You might not think these are strengths, but they're certainly emphases. One is what the you you see all the time if you start reading these guys and hearing from these guys language of principalities and powers. And that, to your point, David, is a biblical phrase. Um, Colossians 2.15. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, or the principalities and powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, We impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who were doomed to pass away. The rulers of this age. So the principalities and the powers the rulers and authorities of this age who are doomed to pass away are referring in the scriptures not to like state power, but to demonic spiritual forces that lie behind massive cultural institutions and complexes. So when the scriptures talk about Jesus disarming the principalities and powers, uh, it's very kind of revelation-ish language too. The language, symbolically, the beast often, usually, almost certainly, is a reference to the state. So the state and other massive cultural institutions that teach our, that help our society become anti-God more and more, the demonic forces behind those are the principalities and the powers, okay? And so counterculturalists argue that any time the church seeks to engage the state, for example, like the religious right wants to, for the purpose of transforming it. They become unwitting tools of the state, and they corrupt and corrode the witness of the church. So they would say that engagement with these massive cultural institutions, and they're thinking about two things mainly. They're thinking about the state, government, and they're thinking about markets, capitalists, basically. Like full-on, hardcore capitalism. That those are two, and I think they're right, those are two of the most significant cultural forces in our world, right? I don't think anyone could possibly argue that that's the case. 
And they say the forces behind that are the forces of the evil one. And to engage these culturally as a Christian is inevitably going to have a corrosive influence on the church. Therefore, they should not engage them. Question, is that an argument that we're making since the beginning or today? Is that what? An argument that we're making since the beginning from the time of Constantine Yes. I mean, since they, you know, if you look at the guys that have been writing about this in the last 40 or 50 years, they'll use any historical example of when the church and the state, for example, are too closely wedded to one another. This is what you see. And they, so to move forward, they really, really don't like the religious right, <laughs> just as an example. Nor do they like the religious left. And y'all are like, there's a religious left? There is a religious left. Yeah, Jonathan. Uh, Writers that you mentioned, um, would they, what would they say about voting? What would they say about being part of the military? Would they be pacifists? Yeah, they're almost they're almost always pacifists. Okay. Um, so they would argue, not all of them, but Hauerwas for sure, kind of the classic thinkers on this, would argue that, yeah, military engagement is something that would be off limits for Christians because. Uh, Engagement with the state is inherently engagement in violence, and Jesus is anti-violence in his core message. Voting, voting I'm not sure what they say about voting. That's a good question. Um, not all of them are anti, like you're, you should not join the military, but that definitely is a natural consequence of their, of their view, for sure. Um, so they're sharply critical of the religious right, and they're sharply critical of basically liberal mainline Protestantism. They say stuff like, Liberal mainline Protestants are the Democratic Party at prayer. And the religious right is the Republican Party at prayer. That they're so closely tied to these political, to political sides and political institutions. The church has been so politicized, they would argue, that they've alienated a lot of the populace and they've weakened the church's witness because they've, they've united in some fashion or form with the principalities and powers. So that's a big deal, big, big deal for the counterculturists. They also are critical of, of evangelicalism. They say evangelicalism is also guilty of this, if not more so, because they've been co-opted, not so much by the power of the state as by the power of capitalism. Um, so they'll, they'll be better critical of like megachurches, for example, who, uh, you know, are basically machines, not all the time. But a lot of megachurches are just machines that have turned the church into, they say, a mall of spiritual consumer services that reflect the reigning spirit of the age. Um, Self-absorbed market capitalism. They'll say the church, by giving people what they want, fails to confront the idolatry that is produced by our culture and by our cultural gods and goddesses like this. Make sense? So that's, in my opinion, undoubtedly one of their emphases. It's probably their prime emphases. I also think, now don't hear, every, don't hear what I'm not saying here. I think it's something that we should listen to. I think it's something we should listen to. Um, listen to Stanley Hauerwas. He writes this, quote, To the extent that Christians still seek to bring together the witness of the church with the power of the state, as it does with the contemporary Christian right and Christian left, it reformulates and perpetuates the ancient heresy of Constantinianism, is what he's saying. Uh, Eugene McCarriher writes this. I think this is in your notes. American Christianity has wholeheartedly, a little bit of exaggeration here, right? Classic way of making a point. Has wholeheartedly and uncritically embraced the logic and practice of modern capitalism to serve it to its own detriment 
and to the detriment of the world it seeks to serve. So that's perhaps the chief emphasis of the counterculturalists is that cultural engagement in the way that transformationists think about it, engaging with politics, engaging with these massive institutions, is going to have an inherently corrupting influence, and it always has historically. But they're not isolationists, right? They're not saying the church should not care about the world. Like Rod Dreher wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Benedict Option. Rod Dreher is a popular opinionists and columnists and he's actually become an Eastern Orthodox Christian and the Benedict option is basically isolate. The Christian should just withdraw from society. That's not what they're saying. The Amish are extreme examples because they're an extreme view of this. They're saying the church should care about and love the world but they do that by just being the church. By being faithful in their countercultural, thick spiritual community in the midst of a broken society. So any questions about the powers and principalities idea or comments? Makes so, sense? So if a community like the Mennonites or the Amish are want to be away from the state or don't want to participate in the markets <coughs> and would love to probably live in a country that is more religious-based versus capitalism or something, why don't they try to have a community in Saudi Arabia? Like what will happen if they leave America? Yeah, I think that they don't get it that the only reason why they can exist is because of the kind of government that we, that we have. Yeah, I think that's a good... They will not be able to be in another country. That's a good insight. There is some irony <laughs> to the counterculturalist mindset, and that is their great enemy is um, kind of the modern state and modern capitalism. The very but their whole ex- to be, yeah, but their whole, their whole existence is premised on being against something. And so if that something disappears, they have no reason for existence in a lot of ways. It's kind of an irony there. And I also think you're right. Their existence is also dependent to some degree. At least, well, I don't know if, that's tr- if I would put it that strongly. They, they certainly reap the benefits of a pluralistic society with religious freedom, undoubtedly. That, that's fair, but it's also like if you read Howard Watts, he is his, he's sort of indifferent to martyrdom. In other words... Like, so you're saying, Jose, like, what if they just moved to Saudi Arabia? Like, they would be... They'd all have their heads chopped off. Yeah, they they would get get their heads chopped off. They would be, you know, punished severely, right? And so Harawas is so indifferent to that. Like, when the first Iraq war came up, like, his comment was, we should be, like, parachuting missionaries in by the thousands to die. No, no. I mean, that's He's not, too busy not, writing books about how everybody else should go. Right, right. So, so there, there are other things you could say, but like that was his mindset was Christians should be prepared to be dropped in and killed yep. as the witness to the church. Yeah, he'd say that's what it means to be the church in the world, right. is, to be, is to experience suffering, to be a marginal community. <laughs> the church on the margins is super important for these people. And there's a biblical thread there that's undoubtedly true. What did we see in Hebrews, guys? We looked at Hebrews repeat for six months, and all Hebrews talks about is we're pilgrims. We're outside the camp. The, the, the counterculturalists say the church in the West has lost that identity, and it's been to their detriment. So they have the powers and principalities is a strong emphasis. Another strong emphasis is they have, in some ways, a very strong and robust ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. And this is what I was getting at. They're not isolationists. They want to bear witness to the kingdom and to the reign of Jesus in the world, just like the transformationalists do. But they want to do it 
by having the church be super strong and robust as a counter community in the midst of the world. Not a church that has all the power and is in the center of things, but a church that lives on the social margins and, and they would say, like Jesus did, they would say, Jesus came, Jesus sought to serve his neighbors with love and justice. He was on the social margins, and the Romans and the Jews killed him for it, which is what always happens when people live on the social margins and seek to live a life of peace and justice. The powers and principalities kill you. And I also think there's some reality and truth to that. So they say, we, we witness to the kingdom by being who Jesus tells us to be, which is the people of God who have a very different way of looking at the world. But our, our gods are not making the most money or having the most power. In fact, we're going to go and we're going to serve the world in the, name of the, in the name of Jesus for the sake of the world, even when the world hates us. So there's a lot of talk about um, Shane Claiborne, who I mentioned earlier. He's the leader of this movement called New Monasticism, right? And you get the idea, hopefully, that the monks created these communities, but they weren't, at least initially, meant to be isolationist communities. And they weren't. They preserved Western culture, by the way, for a thousand years through the Dark Ages. And he would say, that's what the church should be now. We should be monastic. We should focus on our own community and be strong in our own, uh, with our own people so that the world sees it, sees the way we love each other, and uh, is called into life with Jesus as a result of our witness. So a transformationist says... The world's called into the life of Jesus as a result of our witness by being great engineers and great teachers and great politicians and engaging. Counterculturists say the world is called into life with Jesus as a result of our witness just by loving each other as the church on the social margins and not caring about power. Make sense? So strong ecclesiology, last strength. Uh, There's a strong call for prophetic action and courage regarding the poor and the marginalized. I've already talked about this a little bit. So you often hear transform. I mean, excuse me, counterculturalists. They'll quote Mary's uh, the Magnificat when the angel appears to Mary and she prays and she sings the song. God has humbled the proud and He's brought down the the mighty with His arm. And they often will quote Jesus in Luke four when Jesus shows up in the temple and reads from Isaiah sixty one and He says, "I've come to give sight to the blind and minister to the poor." Well, they take that in a very horizontal way, right? They don't spiritualize that stuff away like we tend to do, if I could say that. They take it literally. And so they say that our call as Christians and the call of kingdom agents in the world is to do what Jesus did, to come and live as one on the margins, love and serve the world with a peaceful, nonviolent, authentic existence. And when that happens, the state's going to oppose us. The state might you know, persecute us, but that only serves to do what Jesus, that serves to further the interest that Jesus has in the world. So they have a great emphasis on caring for the poor, on caring for the marginalized, on caring for orphans, but not through state power. So that's another, in my opinion, emphasis and strength. Here's how Tim Keller summarizes them. This is Keller. He's not a counterculturalist. This is his summary of counterculturalists. Real Christianity, they say, is a life of simplicity, of material self-denial for the sake of charity, justice, and community. It means decreasing both geographical mobility, committing to a local church and neighborhood, and social mobility, giving away large amounts of your income to those in need. Thoughts on the emphases or strengths of the counterculturalists or questions? 
before we get into some of their weaknesses. Question on correlation. Sure. Uh, you, talked, you mentioned that the church would be involved in caring for the marginalized before the week of work and stuff like that. Just going back to American history in the early 1900s before the state took over foster care and a lot because of that, that kind of concept. Would Americans engage at that point in more of the transformationist model from that, that view or is that a counter-cultural engagement? People that sometimes argue that the state should give that stuff back to the church. Yeah, so I think, to, you know, there's pro it's probably a lot more complicated than what I'm about to say. A transformationalist would say we need Christians working with CPS, like engaged in yeah. those state-run institutions. And a counterculturist would say, no, the, the job of the church is to go do that as the church and to do it much, much better than the state can do it. Okay. I'm not sure about all the intricacies of how they view that stuff, but it's very similar to, well, actually, no, I'm not going to say that. But that's a good example. Yeah, that's a good example. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Jonathan. Uh, I'm looking at the strong and robust ecclesiology, and I noticed the phrase there says, the way to change the world. Mm -hmm. There's still a goal of changing the world, yeah. but it seems like it's to, to win the world and absorb it into the church so that in an ideal way, the state does not exist, and it's just... Church. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they would say about I don't think they envision a day when the state doesn't exist. But I think they would say the state is the state is going to inherently corrupt the church when the church wants to use the state's power to accomplish so it's its mission. Like the, the state would diminish as the church increases and they never disappear. Yeah. Or the church the church is strongest when it is doing the work Jesus has called it to and doesn't give a rip about what the state thinks, and more so, as Alan said, is willing to suffer at the hands of the state. Whereas they would say what, what the transformationists have done, especially the religious right, is say we can only change culture by getting power via the state, by getting Bush in the presidency, and by getting Christian congressmen. They think that is inherently anti-kingdom because it's inherently corrosive. And I think that, yeah, they would have no expectation that the state would go away. In fact, if you said, well, like, what happens if, you know, Stanley Hauerwas has a conversation with Donald Trump when he's in office and says, you know... That'd be an interesting this conversation. This is an inherently corrupting institution, and it's corrupting you. And, you know, Trump says, you know, you're right, I resign. I'm sure that's what he'd do. And would that, yeah, that would, yeah, so, <laughs> so, yeah, transformationalists would say, repent and start doing A, B, C, D as a program to facilitate these objectives. And a counterculturist would say, well, here's your resignation letter just signed. And because it's corrupting and it should be somebody else that is corrupted, not you. If you've repented, you have no further role in that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the two big questions. Um, should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the possibility of cultural change? What, is it, what does a counterculturalist say? Transformationists say we're more optimistic, right? What about a counterculturalist? Pessimistic. pessimistic, for sure. Like, they would say, I don't even like the way you're asking the question, right? Um, how about the second question? Is the current culture redeemable and good, or is it fundamentally fallen? How does a counterculturalist answer that one? It has fundamentally fallen. It's fundamentally fallen, and it's so fallen that association with it when the church, as the church does so, is going to corrupt it. The church doesn't, the, it's like, you know, well, never mind, I'm not going to use that illustration either. 
I'm growing. I'm stopping and refraining myself from using illustrations that probably would get me in trouble. So um, let's look at a couple of weaknesses, and then we'll, we'll hopefully we'll have some time for discussion. Here's one. I think the chief weakness, this is my opinion, in the counterculturalist movement, is that they're more pessimistic about the prospect of social change than is warranted. I mean, uh, sometimes good changes can happen because Christians are at work in the world. Um, I mean, a very justly famous example is William Wilberforce, which I looked at. I think we talked about that last week, who was the 19th century British statesman who was largely single-handedly responsible for ending the slave trade in the UK. Um, so would a counterculturalist, would they say that that was an illegitimate project? I think they would say, yes, it was. And just thinking more broadly, the Christianization of the Western world in general, to your point earlier, Jose, like, Pagan Europe was transformed by missionaries going through the world. I mean, it just was. St. Patrick and many, many others changed the world so that the influence of Christianity still a thousand years later is vast over the Western world. The fact that we have a modern view of human rights is, is based on, ironically speaking, since now Christians are accused of violating people's human rights, the only reason people care about human rights is because of Christianity. That was not the case in 700 AD, you know, when pagan hordes were invading Rome. So Christianity has changed the world, and a counterculturalist does not have room for that in his or her worldview. And I think that, in my opinion, is a crippling weakness. Look at what D.A. Carson says. Uh, he writes this, Sometimes a disease can be knocked out. Sometimes sex traffic can be considerably reduced. Sometimes slavery can be abolished in a region. Sometimes more equitable laws can foster justice and reduce corruption. Yet in these and countless other ways, cultural change is possible. More importantly, doing good to the city, doing good to all people, is part of our responsibility as God's redeemed people. I find that to be a helpful quote. A couple of weeks ago, I mean, we talked about Roe v. Wade. It's a modern example of... Without question, that would not have happened without the work of faithful Christians in all kinds of varied spheres of influence. And I think that the counterculturalists are just frankly, while I do think they have some really important insights for us, I think they're too pessimistic about the possibility of Christians working for good in the world without like inherently becoming these corrupted power mongers. You know, does that make sense? I think that's their chief weakness. This, this yeah, David. Way, though, kind of almost seems to illustrate the weaknesses of both models of the framing, right? Because of the idea that, like, yes, it shows that you can overcome it, and there's that's really important. And you see that in the slave trade as well, right? Mm -hmm. But then you see, okay, but then it returns to the hearts of men, and it's going to go back to the states again. I completely agree with that. And yes, a great win, right? But it's got to go back to the states, and then it is going to be on what people individually and personally understand of grace. And, and yes, that's a great point. So, so the, tr the transformationists are likely a little too triumphalistic yeah. about the possibility of change. The counterculturists are too pessimistic about the possibility of change. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Is it good that Roe v. Wade was overturned? Yes. Is the issue of abortion solved in America? No. You know, so I think that's a great point. Transformationists tend to think my engagement with the state or my engagement in markets or my work at Apple is going to have, we talked about this last week, it's going to have this, an impact. And remember last week we said it's only going to be incremental. But to a counterculturist, we, need, we would need to say incremental is good. 
incremental is worthwhile. Incremental is worthy of our efforts, right? But yeah, I think that's a good point. Okay, a second weakness. Counterculturalists tend to demonize modern business markets and government. So if you read, start reading these guys, I mean, I actually, to be totally honest, have a lot of sympathy with them on this. But there's a constant criticism of um, much of modern capitalism, which I think you can make the same point. Modern capitalism. It's kind of like the best option in a really broken world, in my opinion. Um, How do you acquire the you go to Amazon.com, this modern capitalist <laughs> powers and principalities institution. <laughs> Pay $12.99 and buy Howard Wass's book. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Gives his profits to the poor. Um, they constantly criticize capitalism. They're committed to pacifism, which I think might have some merit. But they, they go beyond being anti-war to being like, if you have a role in the government uh, as a Christian... The government, all human government is inherently violent. Yeah, probably a little extreme, in my opinion. They discourage Christians often from getting involved in the business world or in politics. I think this is just an overreaction to Constantinianism. And uh, it's possible to be a really successful business person and have a ton of money and have a really important position and be a faithful Christian. That's possible. It's possible to be an Air Force pilot. Maybe. And be a faithful Christian. It's possible to have significant role in government and be a faithful Christian. And I think it's also a fair question. Again, Jose, you brought this up. We're like, if you don't, if you hate capitalism so much. So what is your alternative? Like, and I think they would say, we don't care what the alternative is. Christians shouldn't be. So a lot of hipsters that like want, you know, fair trade coffee, all that. They're the, they're the counterculturalist types. So, okay, that's another weakness. Third weakness Counterculturalists fail to give sufficient weight to the inevitability of contextualization. So think about it this way. They say the church should just be the church, a thick spiritual community, and enter into a neighborhood and serve the poor. The moment, let's say we decide, let's say this whole class decides to go do that. We're going to go plant kind of a counterculturalist church on the south side of San Antonio and serve the poor and care for the marginalized and seek to be and represent the kingdom of God through our love for each other. The moment we show up in the neighborhood, that neighborhood changes. The moment, you know, we got like five Hispanic people, an Indonesian, and a bunch of white people. (laughs) The moment they show up in that neighborhood, the neighborhood is inherently changed, and we're inherently impacted. Um, And I think counterculturalists fail to give sufficient weight to that. So a a new monastic community in China is going to look different from a new monastic community in Finland. And it's naive to believe The point is it's naive to think the church can only be a distinct community that witnesses to the world without being anything like the surrounding environment. You have to inevitably contextualize to your environment. Then the last weakness, counterculturalists overemphasize the enemy being outside the church and underemphasize the possibility that within the church people can be power hungry (laughs) and there can be abuses of power within the church. Which is exactly, and at the risk of sounding harsh or overgeneralizing, there's a lot of sexual abuse and predation and problems in these sorts of counterculturalist communities because their antithesis between the church and the world is so stark, it's so strong that they tend to overlook or underemphasize the problems that can happen within the church, which I think is a big weakness. 
So those are some, uh, those are some weaknesses of counterculturalism. I know this is going to be really fresh information to a lot of you guys, and the reason I want to talk about them is because I do think they have really helpful insights for us. Um, I am not a counterculturalist. I'm more, for sure, lean transformationist. That probably is obvious from the way I'm talking. But I do think it's worth our attention and some thinking and some, some time because they tend to focus on biblical threads that we want to minimize, which I think is good. Okay, let's, see, let's have some – got, we got some time here. Any discussion, any questions, thoughts? I have a question, Luke. Sure. Scripture calls the church to be unified, you know, and to be of like mind. And I've just found it very difficult to even know what that looks like because clearly we're not all of like mind and unified. And it seems like unless you tell us what to think, there's no way we can all be of like mind. And I don't understand how we accomplish that kind of unity. You mean on these kinds of topics? Well, I think the reason this topic, this topic is a topic on which there's a diversity of opinion among faithful Christians is because, we talked about this a little the first week, there's different, you can read a different part of the Bible, and if you just have that, you're going to draw different conclusions. Like if you just read the end of Genesis, or if you just read Daniel, you're going to think, all Christians should be engaged like Daniel and Joseph were engaged. But if you just have 1 Peter and Hebrews, you're going to come to a different conclusion. So the Bible seems to have all these different emphases and threads, which is why there's a diversity of opinion. And I'm saying we need to do justice to all the threads and not overemphasize one at the expense of another. And actually, I think that is unifying. This is an issue on which there can be some level of disagreement among faithful Christians and not rupture unity. And I think you're giving me way too much credit to say I can just tell you what to I know that's not true. I've been trying to do that to y'all for 10 years. You don't agree with anything I say. Well, I think also it, it sort of brings out, like if we, if we sort of make black and white and in you know, vivid contrast what some of the approaches are that people are already bringing to the table. Yeah. And then it gives us an opportunity to learn from each other and grow together. So, so we start with the unity of the gospel, and then we grow into a unity of thought and practice over time. Yeah. So let's say, for example, and this is hypothetical, Alan and I have slightly different – this is hypothetical. Say Alan's coming from a religious right perspective, and I'm coming from a counterculturalist perspective – we're united on the gospel. We're together in the same church. So I can hear from Alan and listen to his views and his scriptural takes on this. And I should be able to have the humility to say, those are good points and vice versa. And I think to Alan's point, that is that requires some charity and some humility, but should be unifying, which is part of the purpose of the class, is to give these differing views. Say none of these views are evil and demonic. So all of them have strengths and all of them have weaknesses. in the body. I, like to David's example about Roe v. Wade, you need transformationalists to change federal laws and you need counterculturalists to help uphold those federal laws. Like these, these differing viewpoints 
You just made Amanda mad. I know, Amanda mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rick's gone too. Oh my God. If I don't go, somebody more important than you is going to be really upset. Thomas is going to stay. So I'm with you till the end. Yeah. In, in the way places and ways that they overlap and Christians are called to biblical wisdom and so yep. I just I don't want to see like this binary thinking of yes I'm this no I'm this like let's find the middle road of wisdom take the strengths from both and know that different people are going to end up on different ends of that spectrum yep. but it doesn't mean that there's not unity does that make sense? Yeah and also part of it is the context of which got like God has called you, David, to serve with the United States Air Force. You're not going to be a counterculturalist. I mean, you just can't be, unless you want to resign, which I don't think you can't even can do. Anyway, um, so you, part of it is just where has God placed me, and how can I be faithful in where God has placed me, to your point. And, yeah, I agree. We should be, not be thinking of this in terms of only right and only wrong. It's a little bit more gray than that. Okay, any last questions? Thomas. I think the example of the church, like he's talking about, where you have an illustration where it just says, you know, the body, can't, the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Yeah. Because I think there is, there's very much, there's different spiritual gifts, there's different things that God calls yep. to do. So you can't necessarily say that this is all right or this is all wrong. Yeah. Everybody, needs to be every, never, everybody doesn't need to be in the middle either, because there is a role for each one of these. Yeah. That's so good. Being taken too far. Yep. And that's part of the reason I wanted to do, go through some of this material with y'all, because I, I don't want us just to be like a religious right church. That's not what I'm interested in. That's not what we should be. Nor do I want us to be just a bunch of countercult. Like, there needs to be diversity on this issue. We need to be thinking about people that have different experiences and different viewpoints than us. And uh, I think that's, that's valuable for sure. Okay, next week's our last class, and we will finish by looking at the two kingdoms, which will be fun, hopefully. So let me pray. Thanks, God, for time together this morning. Bless our um, worship as we go to meet together with you. Send your spirit to enliven our hearts and our minds that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.